thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. God, thank you for this time that we can be gathered here together, Lord. Uh, thank you for just the facilities we have to meet in. God, thank you for the flexibility of our, our team and our congregation, Lord, to be able to be here this evening still um, when we're getting the building worked on. And, um, I pray that you would be with us here this evening. As always, Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we go through your word, Lord, that you would be speaking to each and every one of us, Lord, um, showing us what it is we have to learn here from the book of Joshua, um, that we might draw closer to you and glorify you more and more with our lives. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us all here tonight, guys. Uh, thanks for your flexibility as well. I know um, it's a little bit different uh, the way things are from what we're, we're used to around here. Uh, but it should be worth it. If you guys get a chance, I would peek in the windows of the sanctuary on your way out. It looks pretty great right now. So it should be a, a vast improvement, I think, from uh, how it was before. So come back again this Sunday, and I think we should all be good to go. Uh, so as you guys probably know, um, we're continuing our study verse by verse through the Old Testament, and we find ourselves tonight in Joshua chapter 11. Uh, so as we uh, get started in Joshua, um, just a few things to consider. Um, so we look at the context of Joshua. Uh, we see Joshua take over as the new leader of the people from Moses. He's the successor to Moses. Uh, Joshua is the one who's to lead the people of Israel out of their wilderness wanderings into the promised land, that they might take hold of the promises that God had given them so long before. And so in the, the process of this, we see God do a lot of great things. We see God commission and prepare Joshua and the people of Israel for this task. We see God miraculously part the Jordan River. Uh, we've seen God miraculously deliver the city of Jericho over to the Israelites. We've seen the people of Israel fail in obedience at Ai, and then deal with that disobedience and receive victory from the Lord. Uh, we've seen them be deceived by the people of Gibeon. And uh, last week in chapter 10, we saw Israel fend off a coalition of different kings. So the land of Canaan at this point in time was ruled by all these different city-states. So they had these fortified cities scattered throughout the land in key areas that could control different valleys, different passes through the mountains, um, pasture lands, different things like that. And most of these were semi-independent from one another, uh, but they were united in their opposition to the people of Israel, that they had a common enemy in Israel and in their God. And so they were united against them and fighting against them. And so last week we saw Israel defeat a group of these kings that had banded together to oppose them. And in the process of that, uh, God gave them a great victory and delivered over the cities of these kings as well. That we saw God do that in a way that would be unmistakable, that could only be accredited to the Lord. And that's so much of what we see in the book of Joshua, is that we see God giving his people victory over and over again in a way that only he could do. There's no way the people of Israel should have been able to do this or could have been able to do this on their own. But because God was with them, they were unstoppable. And so tonight we're going to see a lot more of the same in many ways. Um, everyone loves a good underdog story. We think about sports movies. We think about different stories. We see all these different things that people like to root for the underdog. They like to see 
the one who shouldn't be able to win, come and triumph over the better prepared, more experienced adversary. There's just something fun and unique about that. And so tonight in this chapter, these chapters, we're going to see Israel in the place of the underdog once again. We're going to see another group of kings coalesce their forces together to stand in opposition to the nation of Israel. But the thing these kings forget is that with God on their side, Israel could not be the underdog. There's no way that anything they could do would be enough to tip the balances in their favor when Israel was fighting for and with the Lord. And so our focus point tonight is that our victory and final rest is guaranteed by God and that we need only to persevere and to obey. Uh, That God has won the victory, that God has guaranteed victory, And that our job is to live in light of that victory, to strive forward, to take hold of that victory in perseverance and in obedience, much like the people of Israel are here in these chapters. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to be again in Joshua chapter 11 and 12 this evening. So Joshua 11, starting in verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hatsor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshath, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth, and in the lowland, and in Naphtha-dor on the west, to the Canaanites on the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And so, just again, a quick recap. Chapter 10, we saw Israel win this great victory over these five different kings that had united against them, brought their armies together, and stood in opposition to them. And so when that happened here in chapter 11, it says that when they had heard of this, when they had heard of the defeat these other Canaanite kings had suffered at the hands of Israel, that more of them got together, uh, namely the king of Hatsor. So Hatsor was uh, one of the key cities in this area. Uh, To this day, it's one of the the largest ancient ruin sites in Israel, uh, that it's the, the largest city built on a mound over the ruins of previous civilizations in that area. Uh, And so it's pretty cool that they know where these places actually are. They've pinpointed a lot of these cities and these different areas in Israel. And you can even uh, look it up online and see pictures of it or go there in person and see the areas that Israel was fighting to control and why they were so key to the terrain in this area. So Hatsor It was one of the largest cities in this region, one of the most influential ones. And so their king decided to unite with these other kings and fight against Israel. And so they gather their forces together. Uh, They march to a point where they can stand and fight with Israel. And it says in verse 4, they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And so these kings not only had a large army, they had a well-equipped army. Uh, These these men were ready to fight. 
And we see Israel over and over again in the Old Testament be put in a position where they were fighting larger forces and oftentimes better equipped ones, uh, that Israel didn't have chariots, they didn't have horses, they didn't have cavalry. They weren't equipped at the same level as many of these other armies. And I think God did this in many ways on purpose in order to help the people of Israel trust in him and his faithfulness and in order to make it unmistakable who the victory belonged to, uh, that they were standing against a larger, better equipped force without the same kind of tools at their disposal. But what would God do in that situation? How would he answer their call? Would he be faithful to the promises that he given and give them victory once again over their enemies? And many times in the Christian life, it feels like we, like the people of Israel, are facing insurmountable odds. Then in our day-to-day lives, in our workplaces, in our schools, we can feel like we're outnumbered, like there are thousands standing against us and so few walking the path of righteousness that God has called us to. Uh, There's many challenges that come that seem to last so long and things that we don't know how we're going to get through, that we're faced with challenges that we can't even imagine a path out of. But like the people of Israel, we have to remember that we are never outnumbered with God, that there is no one who can stand against us if we are on the side of the Lord. Verse 6, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misrephoth Mame, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And so in these verses, we see the result of this, that God gives Israel a great victory over their enemies through his power and through his faithfulness. Uh, We see such similar wording to this throughout the book of Joshua. In verse 6, the Lord tells Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And so Joshua and the people of Israel are encouraged over and over again in this book to trust in God. And they're reminded they don't have to be afraid. They don't have to be afraid, not because they're able to handle the challenges. That God commands them to not be afraid, not because they have a great army, not because of their experience, not because of the victories that they've seen already, but because God is with them and God has promised to see them through whatever they're up against. And so Joshua and the nation of Israel trust God and they act on that promise that God has given them. Uh, This is very similar to what we talked about last week, um, that God told the people of Israel, commanded them to not be afraid, that he had promised to give them victory in this case. And then Joshua and the people of Israel act upon 
that promise. It says in verse 7 that Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. So God promised that he would give them victory, and they trusted God in that. And because of that trust, they were able to step out in faith and in action to follow after the Lord and his promises. Uh, That following God so often requires us to step out and to act, to do things in faith rather than just sitting by and waiting for God to hand it to us. God had already promised the victory. God had already won the victory, in essence, for the people of Israel. But they still had to trust God enough to do what he had commanded them to, to act in obedience and to follow after where he was leading them. Uh, Interesting side note on this one. Um, So in verse 6, God commands that Joshua, after um, they had, had had their victory over the Canaanites here, that they should hamstring the horses and burn their chariots with fire. And so Israel was going to be faced in this position with the capture of all these weapons, of this equipment, from this army that was bigger and better equipped than they were. And God commands them when this happens that they're not to use these things. They're not to build up their own cavalry. They're not to take these chariots and use them in battle, that they're to destroy them and burn them. Uh, The general idea of hamstringing the horses, most understand that, that they would go in and they would actually cut some of the tendons on the back of their legs so they would no longer be able to run or to carry heavy loads, that they would be completely useless in battle after that, Um, that they were to destroy these weapons that they had captured, not to take them and use them for themselves. Uh, So if we look back at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, before any of this had happened, Uh, God commanded the people of Israel. He said, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So God had already foreseen these circumstances and he had commanded them what to do in this situation. Uh, Psalm chapter 20 The psalmist says in verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so even though the nation of Israel was less well-armed, was smaller, that they weren't fighting on their home terrain, there were so many advantages that the Canaanites should have had on paper in this battle. But they had God, and they were commanded to trust in God and not in any sort of experience or equipment that they might have. And so for us, it's important as we go through life to remember what God has done and to remember the promises that he has given to us, uh, that we have seen God prove himself trustworthy again and again in our own lives, in the scriptures, in the lives of those around us. And so when we're faced with challenges, we have to call those things to memory, to be quick to remember who God is and who he is he has promised to be and what he has promised to do for us, that we can trust God. And truly to be trusting God, that means we have to be walking in obedience to him. That if we trust God, that necessitates action on our parts, that we will trust him and we will walk in obedience to him. 
uh, that we will follow his commands and his ways because we trust him to carry us through whatever it is that we're facing. Verse 10. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatsor and struck its king with the sword. For Hatsor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hatsor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatsor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel, led by Joshua, trusted God. They stepped out in faith and struck against their enemies, taking the initiative, even though they were outnumbered and outmanned. And they followed God in this. Joshua gave them a great victory. Joshua gave the city of Hatzor even over to them. That Once they had defeated the army, they were able to capture this key city for the entire region um, and to destroy it. And when they were doing all this, it's notable their obedience. That it talks about how they burn the city, they destroy the inhabitants, they took the spoils from the city. In verse 15, it says, So Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua took his role as leader of God's people very seriously. He took his role as Moses' successor very seriously. And he was careful to walk in complete obedience to God. That's worth noting here that it says he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Uh, That he was participating in this conquest in complete and full obedience to the Lord. And it reminds us of how important that complete obedience is. Uh, That oftentimes it's easy to offer to God partial obedience. That we can think, oh, I'm doing most things the right way. That I haven't, you know, I haven't strayed too far from God's path here. That it's just the little things that I might not be obeying in. But to truly experience victory and the blessing that God desires for his people, complete obedience is necessary. And I think a great illustration of this, uh, we'll see as we get later into the Old Testament, uh, we think about King Saul uh, coming up as the first king of Israel. Uh, that Saul was a man who was selected by the people. He was a man who had the qualities they wanted in a king. He was tall. He was handsome. He had a commanding presence. He led the people in battle and experienced victory very early on in his rule. But so much of Saul's undoing was his partial obedience to the Lord. Uh, In 1 Samuel 13, we see him offer sacrifices he was not commanded to before going into battle. That he was doing something 
That was a good thing. But he was not the man who was supposed to be doing it. It was supposed to be done only by a priest or a prophet. Saul was the king. He wasn't supposed to fulfill that role. And so his partial obedience got him in trouble there. Uh, We see again uh, Saul in a very similar situation to this. Goes into battle with the Amalekites. And he's commanded to kill their king and all their livestock to eradicate them from the face of the earth so that they would not become a snare and a temptation to the people of Israel. And Saul wins the victory. He defeats the army, but then he keeps some of the best livestock. He leaves their king alive. And Samuel, the prophet, comes and rebukes him for this. He he tells him that this is not what God had intended. Um, Saul's excuse was that he wanted to save some of the animals to sacrifice. At least that was the cover he made in the moment. And Samuel told him in this this moment that to obey was better than to sacrifice. That God had given him specific directions to follow and he had strayed from those and strayed from God's plan and eventually he strayed from God's favor as well losing his right to rule over the nation of Israel because of his partial obedience. And so for us, walking with the Lord, just as much as the people of Israel, it's important that we walk in complete obedience to God, that there's no portion of our lives that we keep from God, that we want to be fully submitted to his rule and to his authority within our lives, that in order to experience the victory God has won, in its full form. In order to continue walking in God's blessing the way he intends for us, we have to be obeying God completely with every part of our lives. Verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negeb and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below, Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. This is an interesting paragraph here. There's a few different things uh, we're going to touch on. But the first one here is the persistence of the people of Israel. As we read through the book of Joshua, most of the action, the fighting, the conquest, the conquering of these Canaanite kings, armies, and cities is all focused in just a few brief chapters that we can read through this in probably less than an hour and see victory after victory after victory that God gives the people of Israel. Um, As we get to the end of our time tonight, we're going to read over a list of the cities and kings that God had given them victory over. And so when we read over that, it can seem like this happened pretty quickly. And you just, the Israelites go in, God gives them victory. They fight another army, God gives them victory. They capture more cities. They go to a different part of the country. They capture more cities. But in verse 18 here, we're reminded, it says that Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Uh, This was not something that happened overnight. Um, Later on in Joshua, 
in chapter 14, we get a little bit of a clue about what happened there. Uh, It's talking about Caleb, one of the original spies who was sent into the promised land when Moses was still leading the people after they left Egypt, uh, that Caleb and Joshua were the two spies who did not rebel against God, who were faithful to him, who believed that they could conquer the promised land. And because of that, they were spared from the sentence of death in the desert, in the wilderness, that the rest of the nation experienced. And so Caleb and Joshua were part of the leadership going back into the promised land. Uh, But Caleb, um, at the end of this conquest, uh, we do a little bit of math here and we find out, um, given the age he was when they first got to the promised land, their 38 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then the time they spent here in the promised land, it took them around seven years to capture the promised land. For all these events we've been reading about the last few weeks to happen, uh, that they made war for seven years in order to defeat these kings, cities, and armies and to conquer the land that God was giving them. In Exodus chapter 23, God had foretold this. He told Moses and the people of Israel that they would not conquer the land. He would not give it to them quickly at one time, that it would happen bit by bit, piece by piece, so that they would be able to slowly not just defeat the enemies, but to take over the land and begin to settle and dwell in it, to raise crops and livestock, and to begin to live there while they were in the process of conquering it. And sometimes, oftentimes, the way God does things, he doesn't do them as quickly as we would like. And that seven years of war is a long time. Uh, that God had promised this victory to Israel. That he had assured their success in this conquest. But they still had to persevere through it. They still had to go out to gather their weapons and to fight against the enemy, to defeat them to take hold of these different cities and areas, that they had to continue day by day walking in obedience to God, fighting these battles, fighting against their enemies for seven years. That that required a great deal of faith and trust in God and required commitment and perseverance on their part. That's a great truth for us to remember in our own lives, that walking with God is a call to trust for the long haul. That God has given us all a ministry and a calling in life. That as we walk with him, um, that he will set tasks before us for us to do. Um, Many of us, I think, have experienced God's leading in our lives, um, calling us to different places, to different roles, to different tasks. But that doesn't mean that it's going to happen immediately. And that doesn't mean it will happen apart from our obedience and our effort. Um, I think about some of my own experiences in life uh, that I uh, first, first began to wonder about God's work in my life, about uh, his equipping and using me in ministry, working with other people, um, that I thought that maybe God maybe could be leading me towards something like what I'm doing right now. But it was years from when that thought first happened before God actually set me in a position to be standing in front of people preaching his word. That there were years of ups and downs 
and financial trials and health trials and just the difficulties that come with life in a fallen world. And through that, God was faithful and God was working and God was sanctifying me, making me more like him, preparing me for the work that he had revealed he wanted me to do. But I had to continue trudging forward day by day, trusting in his plan and his goodness, even though sometimes it seemed like I was on a completely different path than the one that he had revealed to me. Following God is not always easy. It seems like it's seldom easy. But he is faithful. And we can continue that trudge forward, step by step, day by day, knowing that he will be faithful to bring us where he has promised us and to do what he intends to do in and through us because of who he is, because of his past faithfulness. Uh, The second half of this paragraph we're looking at is interesting because it talks about how God was working through the people of Canaan, through the enemies of Israel. In verse 18, we're reminded that Joshua made war a long time against those kings. Verse 19, it says, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. Those were the people we talked about a few weeks back that deceived the people of Israel and made a treaty with them. Um, So there's not a people who, who made peace with Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, They took them all in battle. Verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So God, in this situation, it says, was hardening the hearts of the people of Canaan of the Canaanites that the people of Israel fought against so that they would fight against Israel and be defeated and be destroyed. That this was God's work, that God had ordained this to happen. And it's interesting to think about what that looks like. Um, There's a, a lot of debate theologically, people trying to fit this into different theological systems and boxes and explain how God does this, that God allows people to choose but God also is sovereign over man's choices. Um, Romans 9 uh, speaks to this, but a great example of God doing this, uh, we saw a few months back when we were reading through the book of Exodus. Uh, So we see Moses approach Pharaoh, commanding him to release the people of Israel, to let them go out of their slavery in Egypt. And we see... Several times as you read through that whole passage, the interactions between Moses and Pharaoh, uh, the different plagues that God sends, all these different events. And we see at the end of each plague, it says either that Pharaoh hardened his heart or that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, So Romans 9 gives us a little commentary on this. Romans 9.14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. So at the end of the day, God is going to do what he intends to do. Uh, That man has the opportunity to trust God, to follow God, to choose to follow after him. But God is absolutely sovereign over what happens in the world. And God is able to use any situation to bring himself glory. That he's even able to bring himself glory through the rebellion of kings and rulers that do not know or acknowledge him. And again, there's debate on what exactly that looks like, how that works. But at the end of the day, this should be a great encouragement for us. That it sounds a little weird that God would do this. But we know God. We have seen the goodness of God. We have seen the mercy of God. And knowing that God is this powerful, that he can use even those who don't know him who oppose him in order to accomplish his purposes to bring himself glory and to bring about good for those who do know and trust him. That should be a great encouragement for us that whatever happens, whatever we're up against, whoever is opposing us, that we can know that God is still in control, that God is going to be faithful to bring about the end that he desires no matter what any person, people, king, army does, that God will do what he wants to do, and we can trust him to accomplish his purposes. And that should give us great hope as we go through the ups and downs of life, the different obstacles and trials and temptations that come, that we can trust God to bring us safely through that, to bring himself glory no matter what happens. Verse 21 of Joshua chapter 11. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. And so we see in these verses here, the people of Israel winding down the initial part of their conquest. that They've captured most of these key cities. They've defeated all the large armies that would be opposed to them. They're controlling now these key strategic areas scattered throughout the land. And then it says that they go into the hill country in verse 21 and they cut off the Anakin. And so this is a a term you may remember from our previous studies uh, in Numbers chapter 13. This is when the people of Israel first get to the edge of the promised land. For the first time, they send the spies in to scout out the land. In Numbers 13, the spies come back and they say, 
There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so these are a race of people that were apparently great in stature. These were some large guys. And so that was part of the reason the people of Israel turned and fled and went back into the desert. That They wandered the wilderness for 40 years because they were afraid of the fortified cities, of the strong and mighty armies there, and of these large people that they thought they would not be able to stand against in battle. We see right here that they've already taken most of the cities. They've defeated the large armies. And now at this point, they have a chance to stand against this race of giants and defeat them entirely. Uh, in verse 22, it tells us that there were none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain outside of the land that they were dwelling in. So the people of Israel, when they trusted God, the outcome was so different here that the first time around they saw these people and they cowered in fear that they failed to trust God and to act in obedience to him, to take hold of that promise and that blessing. And so they suffered for 40 years. The rebellious generation died out in the wilderness. This time around, they trust God. They act in faith and obedience, and they're able to conquer, in many ways, easily, these kingdoms, these cities, these armies, and these giants that they were so afraid of a generation before. And so much of this boils down to faith and trust in God. That when you realize that God is with you, that you are walking in obedience to him, when you are trusting in his promises and you are on his side, that it doesn't matter what stands before you. Things that would strike fear into a normal man, we can stand firm and in faith against, knowing that God gives the victory. In verse 23, right at the very end here, it says that the land had rest from war. Uh, this concept of rest, I think, is such a, a great concept within the scriptures. Um, that There's so much to it. Um, not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense as well. That the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, waiting on their ability to go to Canaan, to the promised land, to take it. While they were in the conquest, they were fighting, they were striving against their enemies, waiting for God to give them victory, that they might have rest and dwell in the land. And we, much like the people of Israel, are fighting we're struggling. We're facing obstacles and opposition. And we are trusting God to bring us to a place of rest. Uh, the book of Hebrews gives us so much fascinating commentary, really, on the Old Testament and what it means for us as believers after the coming of Christ. Um, but Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 8, it says, if Joshua had given them rest, the people of Israel, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. And so for us, much like the people of Israel, 
we're in the middle of battle, that we're surrounded by enemies on all sides, that there's temptations all around us, that we regularly have opportunities where we have to choose to trust God in faith or we can choose to turn and run in fear on a spiritual level. And we can trust in God's goodness, but we also have that ability to look forward to that coming Sabbath rest that God has promised us. Um, That as we go through the different battles and trials and temptations of life, that we can look forward to a coming time when we know that all will be made perfect again, that there will be no more pain, no fear, no suffering, no tears, that we'll experience that full and complete rest and peace that God has promised to those who follow him. And we're not there yet, but we can take heart knowing that that is the path we're on and that our arrival at that destination is guaranteed by our God who has fought the battles for us, who has already won the victory, defeated sin and death, and has promised to be faithful to bring us into his presence in the end. Chapter 12, uh, we're going to breeze through pretty quickly here. It's mostly just uh, a list of names. Um, So Joshua 12, verse 1. says, Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arab eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aroar, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the Sea of Kinneroth eastward, and in the direction of Beth-Jeshemoth to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived in Ashtaroth and at Edrai, and ruled over Mount Hermon, and Seleka and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshmon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. This is just listing off the people that Israel defeated under the leadership of Moses before they entered into the promised land. Uh, They ended up kind of adding on to the promised land some of this extra territory that they conquered on the opposite side of the Jordan River. So starting in verse 7, we're going to see another list of the people groups that they defeated in the land of Canaan. Verse 7, And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Gader, one. The king of Horma, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hatzor, one. The king of Shimron Meron, one. 
the king of Akshaf won, the king of Tanakh won, the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadesh won, the king of Yokneum and Carmel won, the king of Dor and Napheth Dor won, the king of Goem and Galilee won, the king of Tirzah won, in all, 31 kings. So it's a reminder of just how much work Israel did through the Lord. That God was faithful. God had given them this victory, but they had to fight for it. They had to trust God and to obey him through the challenges that came with that. And so our, our New Testament connection here this evening, as we think about all God is doing with his people and through his people here, uh, goes back to Romans, and I uh, got the wrong reference on this slide here. So it's supposed to be Romans chapter um, 11, verse 33. And so Romans 11, I think, is a, a, such a neat passage in many ways. Um, the, the book of Romans um, is really, in many ways, a theological dissertation on the salvation that God has brought for his people. And it talks about just some of those confusing topics, the way God works um, to bring about the salvation for his people. And so Paul finishes writing this huge section, 11 chapters, talking about how powerful, how wise, how good, how faithful God is. And then at the end of chapter 11, he basically breaks out in praise to God. And so Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And I think that's such a great note for us to end on tonight, that we see God's power. We see God's ability to work for his glory and for our good through any situation. And what can we do but praise him for his goodness, for his mercies, for his power and his wisdom that is far above and beyond our finite understanding, that God is powerful, that God is, is faithful, and that our victory and final rest is guaranteed by that God, that we just have to persevere and obey to walk with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. I thank you uh, that you are here with us, Lord. I thank you that you fight for us, God, and that our victory is assured through the work of you and of your Son. Lord, I thank you that you loved us enough to send him to die in our place, to bear the penalty for our sins, Lord, that we might be right with you. And I thank you that we have hope and we have power in life because of you. I pray that you would help us to walk in that hope, um, that we could move forward in life knowing that you are with us, that you will carry us through whatever happens, that you will be faithful to bring about the best result, Lord, and that you would be glorified in our lives and in our entrance into your kingdom. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.